Good morning. This is the day of good news. And the good news is he has risen and he died for whatever you are going through today. If you brought some baggage in, I got good news. You can lay it down and receive from him this morning. As we worship him, he inhabits our praises and he wants to meet with you in an even deeper way today as we celebrate what he did, even when we don't deserve it, although some of you are pretty good looking today. Yes, but he died for you in the middle of your sins. And if you don't know him today, I just pray that you would open your heart and let him talk to you and let him draw you in today as we worship. All right. Crown him with many crowns.
Amen. All right, you guys can go ahead and grab a seat. Happy Easter. So my parents growing up always taught me this thing. Maybe some of you guys know it. We start with, he is risen, and then you respond, he is risen indeed. So let's give that a try this morning, see if we're awake. He has risen. He has risen indeed. That's pretty good first time out. It's nice having my wife and my son back in here right now and having some kids across. I'll, I'll be honest, last Easter was like <laughs> so different than this. And I'm like, oh, I'm so glad you're here with me right now. Um, and, and it's just so fun to see you dressed in your Easter best and, you know, um, just getting to sing songs of celebration. But, but whenever I think of that first Easter, I cannot help but think that it was probably nothing like the celebration that we walk into expecting, right? Because when those disciples woke up, they didn't woke, they didn't woke up, they didn't wake up with this expectation that the grave was empty. They woke up with an expectation that the grave was full of their hope, that the grave was full of the rabbi that they had placed so many of their hopes upon. And so when they woke up, they woke up with very, very heavy hearts with hearts that were weary because they were about to encounter a world that they expected was going to feel broken, where its entire axis had been shifted. And they were broken men and women, discouraged, weary, which is probably pretty fitting for us today given the year and a half that we've just walked through, right? Because last Easter... We had just started quarantine. We were surprised at that time that we had even not been able to start gathering again at that point. And then you add in another year of quarantines. You add in fires that ravaged the entire coast. You add in racial tension that swept across America. You add in political tension from the most contentious election that I can recall in my life. You add in all the social tension that that brought in. You add in the depression the addiction, the broken relationships that took place over the course of this year as we encountered a season unlike any we've ever walked through. And I would imagine that many of us walk in here today weary, much like those disciples waking up. I mean, the fact that we're not even still able to gather all of us in the same building, that we had to take that one glorious service that we typically do and break it into two just so that we could fit you guys in here and still have social distancing, still had to wear face masks. It's kind of like, you know what? All is not yet right with the world, and we're tired, and we're weary. Maybe I'm just projecting. But the truth of the matter is, I suspect that for those disciples waking up, Easter was not a celebration that they anticipated. They were overwhelmed. And then something happened over the course of the day in each of their hearts as they encountered the risen Lord and new life was breathed into their hearts. New hope was given birth in them. And a lot of times we talk about the Easter stories and, we, and I will open the Bible and I'll read a passage that you've heard hundreds of times and it almost feels like a stone that you pull out of the river that has been so worked over that all of the rough edges are gone. And it just doesn't have the power that it used to. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to do similar to what we did on Friday night. I want to invite you to step into the Easter story, to step into a perspective of it, because there's so many different perspectives we could take. 
But I'm going to invite you to put on your sanctified imaginations and step into the Easter story and walk a mile in the sandals of a couple of Jesus' disciples as they encountered the risen Lord and their hope was resurrected. So I want you to imagine this. It is late afternoon on Sunday. And there are two men that are slowly making the seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to the small village of Emmaus. And this in and of itself isn't all that surprising. I mean, this is the day after the, the Sabbath, and not just any Sabbath, it's the day after the Passover Sabbath. So there's lots of good, believing Jews who are headed home. But there's something different about these two guys. They walk with their heads stooped and their feet dragging as if they've been walking for days on end. Their shoulders are bent and bowed under what looks like the weight of the world. And every once in a while, they'll kind of lean over and they'll whisper something to one another. And then they'll kind of lapse into a period of silence as they get consumed with their thoughts. As these two men slowly shuffle along the road, they hear footsteps behind them of somebody approaching pretty rapidly. And so they clam up until this person passes, but this person doesn't pass. As he draws near to them, he says, hey, what are you guys talking about? Both of these men look at one another, surprised that somebody, a total stranger, would ask them a question, but more, more kind of concerned, like, what do we say? How, how do we even begin to put into words the sea of emotion that churns in our hearts? The grief, the broken expectations, the disappointment. Moreover, is it even safe for us to speak those words into the light because the Sanhedrin has ears everywhere? So is it even safe to speak? Finally, one of the men, the one named Cleopas, breaks the silence. Were you just visiting Jerusalem? Have, have you not heard about, about all of the things that transpired there this weekend? What things are you talking about, the stranger asks. <laughs> what things are you talking about? Cleopas looks at this stranger like, what rock did you just crawl out from under? How have you not heard about Jesus? And so he, he asks him, you know, Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet who spoke the words of God with authority. And he backed up his words with powerful miracles as well. Many of us had hoped that he was the Messiah that our people had been waiting for. But that hope is dead. Killed on a Roman cross. And if that wasn't hard enough, this morning, some of our ladies went to the tomb to pay their last respects. And when they got there, it was empty. His body had been stolen. And then they said that they saw some angels who claimed that he was alive, but how can that be? Dead people stay dead. Some of the guys went to go check it out themselves, and they found it just as the ladies had said. The tomb was empty, and quite honestly, we don't know what to make of it. <laughs> the stranger just shook his head as like a father towards a couple of particularly dense children. And then he finally said, are, are you really so foolish that you don't realize that this is exactly what the prophets foretold? The two disciples look at one another in surprise. 
partially because of the man's sudden change in tone and partially because of what he said. What is he talking about that this is what the prophets foretold? They had foretold a conquering king who would come and throw off their enemy, not a crucified rabbi who was crushed under the boot heel of the Roman Empire. Their confusion is written all over their faces. And so as they walk along, this stranger begins to point back to the Jewish scriptures that they had grown up memorizing as children, scriptures that they knew by heart. And specifically, he begins to point out example after example from their scriptures that pointed to a suffering servant. Since it was just the Passover, he reminds them of the significance of the Passover lamb, that time when God was going to redeem his people out of slavery. And so what did he do? He had them take a pure and spotless lamb from their flocks, sacrifice it, and use the blood to mark the door frames of their home so that when the angel of the Lord passed through Egypt, metting out the final plague, when he would come to their homes, he would pass over. And he pointed out that this week, Jesus entered into Jerusalem as that Passover lamb. It was his blood that was shed on the cross that marked God's people so that the wrath of God would pass over them. And then he pointed back to the prophet Isaiah and something he had said in Isaiah 53. Don't you remember that he said, that the suffering servant would be led as a lamb to the slaughter. And what else did Isaiah say? That he would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our sins, that the weight of our iniquities would be upon his shoulders, and by his wounds we would be healed. But do you remember what God also said through his prophets? That he would not allow his servant to stay in the grave, that death would not consume him. That's the hope we have. Don't you see that your Lord, Jesus, had to suffer in this way, to do what God said, and that he had to raise from the grave? Well, as the stranger was speaking, the hearts of the disciples began to beat faster and faster and faster as despair slowly gave way to a new hope. Could what this man be saying be true? Could this have been all part of God's plan from the very beginning? As they ponder these impossible questions, the village of Emmaus comes up over the horizon. Their journey is at an end. At an end. But as these two men begin to make their way through the gates of Emmaus, the stranger looks like he's going to continue on to the next village. But he can't go. We need him. This man has words that have been just bringing new life to our hearts. And so they begged him to stay with them, to enjoy a meal with them. And thankfully, the stranger accepted. That evening, as they sat down for dinner, the stranger took the bread that was served to them. He gave thanks. And then he began to pass it out in a way that was hauntingly reminiscent of the last meal that these two disciples had shared with their rabbi just a few nights before. And suddenly, as they were sharing that meal, the eyes of both of them were open, and they looked at this man who was no stranger. He was Jesus, their rabbi. No, their Messiah, 
alive and in better condition than they'd ever seen him. How could they miss this? How did they not realize it was him? The looks on their face said it all. And Jesus, realizing that they finally knew who he was, smiled at them like, finally, you see. And then, in a blink, he was gone. The two disciples sat there in silence, staring at the space that their Messiah had just vacated. In awe, he's alive. How could he possibly be alive? How do we not recognize him? I mean, weren't our hearts burning as he spoke to us on the road? Slowly, a grin spreads across their faces. Jesus is alive. He's alive. Wait till the other disciples hear this. And then they realize that the other disciples need to hear this. And they look at one another with a look that says everything. They've got to get back to Jerusalem. It doesn't matter that the sun is setting. They've got to get back because this, is, this good news is too good to wait till morning. Now, I will confess, I don't know if that's exactly how it played out. That's how I imagine it as I read the gospel description of these two men who encountered Jesus on the road. But here's what I can say with confidence. The week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday was perhaps the single greatest emotional roller coaster that Jesus' disciples had ever been on. I mean, think about this for a moment. As they joined him in that entrance into Jerusalem with the, the crowds lining the streets shouting, Hosanna, save us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were like, yeah, he's getting the rock star treatment. They know who he is. We know who he is. And we have hitched our wagons to the right guy. And yet, after they entered into Jerusalem, things didn't necessarily go the way they anticipated. I mean, first off, he didn't, you know, kind of follow up that groundswell, turning it into a tsunami that would sweep the Roman legions out of Jerusalem. He spent more time, it seemed, focusing on the misplaced worship of God's own people, on the Jews. He tweaked a lot of noses, irritated a lot of people. And then came Thursday night, a night where they shared the Passover meal together, and at that time... Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, hey guys, I just want to warn you that this isn't going to play out the way you're expecting it to play out. And then he did something really unexpected and really unfitting for the Messiah. He got down on his knees and he began to wash their feet. What is he doing? This isn't the kind of things that we would expect from the king of the Jews. And then suddenly, in a whirlwind, he's arrested He's tried, he's convicted, he's beaten, and he's murdered on a Roman cross. And in that moment, a spear was driven through the heart of their hope. We were wrong, they thought. He wasn't who we thought he was. He didn't do what we thought he was going to do. And as his disciples... If they did that to our rabbi, what are they going to do to us? And so they felt compelled to hide. So, no, the disciples didn't wake up on Easter with hearts full of excitement, looking to put on their Sunday best. They woke up with hearts that were heavy and dis with discouragement. Their hope lay buried in the same tomb where Jesus' body had been laid. 
The women, when they went to the tomb to go pay their last respects, they weren't going there expecting to find it empty. They were going there to say goodbye, to honor him one last time. And even when they saw the empty tomb, even when they met the angels and were told that Jesus was alive, they had a hard time believing it. The disciples themselves, when they heard the testimony of the ladies, didn't believe them. Even when they saw the empty tomb, they still didn't believe it, didn't understand what it meant, even though Jesus had told them, guys, this is going to happen. They didn't get it. I think it's hilarious that we give Thomas a hard time for doubting because, quite honestly, all of them were doubting. Why? Because their hope was dead. Dead men stay dead. And yet, when they finally came face to face with Jesus, when they actually saw him with their own eyes, when they finally got to hear him speak and they got to touch the scars in his wrists, something amazing happened. Their hope was resurrected. But it wasn't the the kind of hope that had died along with Jesus because the hope that had died with Jesus was a hope in something that they weren't quite sure of, but they really hoped it could be. It's kind of like how Robin feels about the angels' chances this year, right? I really hope this is our year where we go all the way. I mean, we got Mike Trout. Come on, it's time. It might not happen, but I really hope it will. In the same way, they looked at Jesus and they went, I really, really, really hope he's the Messiah. He might not be, but I hope that he is. Well, that hope died along with Jesus, bled out on a Roman cross, was buried in a tomb. And the hope that was resurrected with Jesus was as different from the hope that had died as Jesus' resurrection body was different from the body that had been buried. For one, it was a living hope based upon a living Messiah. I love the words that Peter says in the opening of his letter. He says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Jesus was alive, their hope was alive. But it wasn't just a living hope, it was also an active hope. I love watching the difference between the disciples before Jesus' resurrection and after Jesus' resurrection. Before Jesus' resurrection, these are, these are terrified men and women. They are terrified that the same punishment that was meted out on their rabbi would be meted out on them, and so they were hiding. They went into hiding, and they were, they were not willing to come out into the streets. They sent the women out to do stuff, but they were afraid, and so they, they laid low. And yet after they saw the risen Lord, these same men and women who had hidden in an upper room coursed out into the streets and began to declare that Jesus is Lord in the same streets of the city where he had been murdered, surrounded by people who had clamored for his crucifixion. There was something radically different about these men and women who saw the resurrected Jesus. Even when persecution began, even when it started costing them their comfort, even when some of them were killed to try to shut them up, they would not shut up. You know, for me, because 2,000 years removed, it's really easy to kind of be skeptical about whether the tomb was really empty. 
for me, the single greatest bit of evidence that I have that points to the fact that the tomb was empty as it is claimed to be is the transformed lives of the men and women who claim to have seen him. Because these are men and women who are willing to die for that claim. I know a lot of people who are willing to lie in order to benefit themselves. But I don't, I've never met somebody who was willing to die for something they knew to be a lie solely so they could perpetuate that lie. Right? And yet, the vast majority of the men and women who claim to have seen the risen Jesus died for their faith because they would not shut up about it. Jesus' resurrection, the empty tomb, resurrected their hope, and it radically transformed the lives of the men and women who encountered him. But it doesn't just change lives back there and then. It continues to change lives here today. And there's a lot of stories I could share with you about transformed lives. I'm going to share one this morning about my buddy, Carrie Molly. Carrie is a guy that I've known for about a year. He's been a part of our church for about that long, maybe a little longer. But I got to know him over this, this period of COVID. And Carrie's the kind of guy that always has a smile on his face, always ready to give a hug, you know, like, kind of like wearing your mask, like, is it okay for me? Okay, come here, come here. I just want to give, give that man a hug. Always smiling. But I've heard the stories. I heard the stories of what Carrie was like. Carrie was an angry, bitter alcoholic. It had cost him so much. He was the kind of person who could cut you with a word. He's pretty bitter about life. Not the kind of person you would want to be around, certainly not the kind of person you would want to invite over for Easter. And seven years ago, something happened in Carrie's life. Seven years ago, he encountered Jesus, and he submitted his life to Jesus. He traded in his favorite alcoholic spirits for the Holy Spirit, and everything changed for that man. He went from being bitter and angry, like a porcupine that nobody wanted to hug. All of that sloughed away, and suddenly his joy began to return. His gentleness began to return. His his hope began to return, and his, his silliness began to return. I mean, I, 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 Bill has told me about all the times that he would, like, drop stuff in his cup of coffee during Bible study. Like, he was just a jokester. And this happy, joyful man emerged out from under the shell of a man who, who was just bitter about the world and, and the hand that had been dealt him. Now, it's hard for me to believe that story about Carrie because I know him, and all I've known of him is the joyful dude that always wants to give me a hug and always has a joke to say. And I would have preferred to have Carrie stand up here and share his testimony with you. I'm sure he would have done a better, funnier job. He would have been self, more self-deprecating even than I have been. But I can't because two months ago, Carrie was diagnosed with a malignant throat tumor. And the day before he was to begin his chemotherapy, God called him home. So Carrie can't stand here to give you his testimony. And there's a part of me, and for some of us, it could be really easy to go, God, seriously? Now that he's finally pleasant to be around, now you're going to take him? Couldn't you have stopped the cancer? 
Couldn't you have preserved his life? And, and the short answer is yes, of course he could. He's God. He could do whatever he wants. But what carries life and his death reminds me of is something that Jesus spoke to his disciples on the night that he was arrested, right before he was crucified. He looked them in the eyes as they were sharing that meal, and he said, listen, guys, I want to warn you. In this world, you're going to have trouble. In this world, you are going to encounter brokenness because it's a broken world, and following me does not insulate you from the brokenness of this world. It doesn't insulate you from the power of sin, whether it's your own or others. It doesn't insulate you from, from the discomfort that comes from walking through the sin-scarred world. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But he didn't stop on that very depressing note. He continued, in this world, you'll have trouble, but you can take heart in the fact that because of what I've done on the cross, I have overcome the world. Now, at this point, when he said that, I don't think they had a clue what he was talking about. He hadn't died yet. They didn't understand it yet. But they would come to understand it on that Easter Sunday when they saw the resurrected Jesus. And over the course of those 40 days as they got to spend time with him and be reminded of all that he had shared with them. Because of what he was going to do and what he has done for us on the cross, the brokenness of this world does not get the last word. COVID-19 doesn't get the last word. Face masks don't get the last word. Quarantines don't get the last word. Forest fires don't get the last word. Political unrest doesn't get the last word. Racial tension doesn't get the last word. Gunmen who take lives wantonly doesn't get the last word. Depression, anxiety, addiction, broken relationships don't get the last word. Cancer Throat tumors don't get the last word. And most importantly, death does not get the last word. God does. That is the testimony of the empty tomb. That is the hope that was resurrected along with Jesus. And that's good news for Carrie's family. Because we know that as much as we miss him, and we miss him, and I know they miss him even more, that as much as we miss him, this is not goodbye, but simply I'll see you soon. Moreover, this is good news for us as we continue to stumble through this sin-scarred world, as we continue to encounter things that we can't anticipate. I don't know what the coming weeks and months hold. This time last year, I expected that we would all be back within a couple of weeks. Shows how much I know, right? We don't know what the future holds, but here's what we do know. We know who holds our future, and therein is our hope that regardless of what this world throws at us, regardless of the things that we encounter as we stumble through this life, because of what Jesus did for us on the cross and because of the empty tomb, nothing we encounter gets the last word. He does. And that's the hope that we have. And there are some of you that are listening this morning, who have walked in here and the hope that you have has taken an absolute beating this year. In fact, it's on life support or it's straight up dead. You've lost all hope because the life you expected to live, you're not living right now. And I would invite you to do what those disciples did 
on that first Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago. Let that hope die and embrace a new resurrected hope, a living hope that can transform the way you live. It's as simple as... <laughs> is throwing your hands up and throwing them around Jesus and say, help me because I can't help myself. I've tried to be the captain of my own life for too long. And quite honestly, I've made a big mess of it. And I'm done. Jesus, I need you to breathe new life into me. Holy Spirit, I need you to come in and begin to clean house. I don't even want to admit what's in there. But help yourself. Throw open the shutters blow out all of the, the dust and the dead men's bones that are in there. Breathe new life into me. And if that's you, then there's nothing magical about a prayer, but that prayer is simply an acceptance of the fact that you cannot do this on your own. But also, a, a, a joyful reminder that you don't have to. The reason Jesus died for us is because he knew that we could not heal ourselves. We could not fix ourselves. And so I'm going to pray a prayer. And again, there's nothing magical about it. It is simply an acceptance of a gift that we don't deserve. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. But that's what makes it a gift. And if what I am about to pray resonates with your heart, then I invite you to pray it with me. Jesus, thank you for loving me, even when I don't really love myself very much. Thank you for dying for me so that I could live. Thank you for breathing new life into my hope because quite honestly, I need hope right now. So I invite you to come into my life. I accept the gift that you bought for me on the cross that you would be my savior but, more, but it just as importantly, I choose to follow you as my Lord. May your values shape my values. May, I, may you give me the ability to lay down the stuff that's been killing me that I hold on to for my solace and grab hold of you. I need you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. And if you prayed that this morning, or if at some point you decide to pray that prayer or something like it, again, the words aren't magic. Don't keep it a secret. Tell somebody. Tell me. Tell Jeff. We would love to be able to walk with you because here's what I know. We have an enemy who's going to come after you. We have an enemy who's going to try to whisper in your ear, that didn't make a difference. You're still just as jacked up as you ever were. So if you prayed that prayer, let us know so we can journey with you. And then for the rest of us, those of us who have tasted and seen that Jesus is good, those of us who have made that decision long ago to follow Jesus, the invitation for us is that we would not keep this a secret, that we would not keep this to ourselves because there are people all around us that are stumbling through this life hopeless and hurting. And they desperately need the hope that we have found. So I want to pray for us, and I'm going to invite you, if you are willing, to just kind of put your palms out as if you were offering your hands, your, as if you were holding your whole life up to yourself. Think of 
what's in your hands is all that God has entrusted to you. The time he's given you, the talents he's given you, the treasures he's given you, the life he's given you. Even the wounds that he's allowed to be inflicted upon your life that have shaped you into the man or the woman that you are. And as you hold this out, Father God, we submit our lives to you. We are yours. Jesus, you bought us. You paid for us. You redeemed us out of the pit that we had dug for ourselves. We thank you that you haven't given up on us. And now we offer ourselves back to you as prodigals who can't quite believe that we get to be your sons and your daughters. And as men and women who have been created in your image to reflect your heart into this world, we invite you to help yourself to our lives, that our lives, our changed lives, would be the most powerful testimony we could speak, even if we never use words. Help yourself to our lives, that others would see the light reflecting off of our lives and be drawn to the one who radiates that light be drawn to the only one who can save them. We can't save them, but you can. So help yourself to our lives, Jesus. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. All right. Now, let's celebrate together as a family who's been redeemed because Jesus is alive.
better than last year. Come on. Hey, I, as we were singing that song and, and just thinking about the way that Jesus has resurrected our hope, I cannot help but think about the things that we are tempted to place our hope in and how empty they truly are. Whether that be a job that can be gone tomorrow, whether that be a bank account that can be emptied overnight, whether that be a political party or it can be our own abilities to try to order the world according to what we think it should look like. Guys, we have no control as much as we would like to tell ourselves that we do. And the things that this world holds out to us as kind of stand-ins for Jesus, the things that it says this is where you can find your hope, this is where you can find your solace, we've already tasted them when we found them to be empty. They're just more chains that we put on and tell ourselves that we're free. So Father God, help yourself to us. Today I pray that chains have fallen off of our hearts, that the things that we have put our hope in, that you have exposed as the frauds that they really are. And Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to walk to the cross, to stretch out your hands, to embrace our sins, to give your life for us so that we could live for you. We choose today to live for you. 
pray that you would shine brightly through our lives. And that as we submit our hearts to you and allow your spirit to begin to tweak our hearts so that the values that you embody would be reflected back into this world. We pray that others would begin to question what it is that we have found and that they would be drawn to you. So as we leave here now, we leave here as a people who have been recharged with the reminder that we are your representatives, called by your name, empowered by your spirit to be a reflection of your heart into this world, that others might come to find you and be saved. Thank you for the hope that you resurrected 2,000 years ago. Thank you for the hope that you've resurrected today. May we live out of that hope. May we live for you. Jesus, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Guys, if you have prayer requests, and maybe you're online, you can email them to pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. We want to lift them up. If you're here today and you need prayer, I'm going to ask my elders to be available up here. Just come and please pray with us before you take off out of here. Otherwise, I will see you next week. Have a wonderful Easter Sunday. Now go be the church. Have a great day.